0: The 1st of May, 1981, California, USA. A police officer is driving his patrol car along a secluded part of the highway when he notices a broken down vehicle by the side of the road. He decides to stop to see what has happened and to offer some assistance to the stranded occupants of the car. Later, when the officer failed to report back to base, A patrol car was sent out to see if they could locate their colleague and find out why he hadn't answered their calls. Sadly, it wouldn't be long before his lifeless body was found by the side of the road. Backup units soon located the dead officer's stolen vehicle in the Cub Mountain area of the state and a pursuit began. However, it would be a short-lived chase as the car would soon come to a crashing halt. But this wasn't quite the end for the occupants of the stolen vehicle. The driver got out of the car, pulled out a pistol and began shooting at the officers. This is Nordic. True Crime. Annika Maria Östberg was born on the 6th of January 1954 in Stockholm, Sweden. She grew up in the town of Hesselby, a suburb of the capital, together with her mother and father. However, her parents' relationship wouldn't last long into Annika's early years, with the couple divorcing when she was just three years old. She would continue to live with her mother and stayed at her father's house every other weekend – Despite the breakup of her parents, she was, at the time, growing up in an environment with two parents who cared dearly for her, raising her in what could be considered as a pretty much normal childhood. One day, Annika's mother, who worked as a flight attendant traveling all over the world, met an American man when her daughter was nine years old. The relationship would blossom. And she would go on to marry her new partner and soon reveal to Anika that they would be moving to America to live together with her new stepfather. On arrival in her new country, Anika was enrolled into an expensive private school, and it was about this time she felt that her relationship with her mother had changed. She stated years later in an interview with Swedish radio station P3, That her mother had always been her best friend, and she felt that her new husband had come between them. She would be forever taking his side in arguments, all the time disregarding what her young daughter had to say. Some years later, Annika began dating a man who she met when she was at a club watching a band play in her home state of California. His name was Bullet, and he played the drums. During a break in the band's performance, he began flirting with Annika. And from this chance meeting, they began seeing each other on a more regular basis, soon becoming an item. However, there was one problem. Bullet was older than her. A lot older. At the time of meeting, Annika was 13 years old and Bullet was 24. 24. It was a hugely significant age gap. Naturally, her mother was outraged when she found out and forbid her daughter from seeing the much older man. But as the relationship between Annika and her mother was already at breaking point, this confrontation wedged an even bigger, perhaps irreparable, gap between mother and daughter. Annika had had enough and ran away from home but it wasn't long before she was soon found and placed into a facility for troublesome juveniles After a short stint at a home she continued to see Bullet at the displeasure and anger of her mother but this wasn't going to stop Anika. She suggested to Bullet that they run away together to San Francisco and that is exactly what they did She did however take something with her her mother's credit card, perhaps in spite of what had become of a once loving, respectful relationship. It was 1967, the height of hippie power in San Francisco, and thousands flocked to the city, chasing drugs, music, and the hippie dream. Annika was no different and there was one thing in particular with that era which immediately caught the attention of the innocent 13-year-old. The drug culture. Even on her first night in the city she had been introduced to LSD. But the 1960s drug scene was not for everyone and it wasn't long before Bullet decided that he had had enough of this new culture and returned home. Anika. Was young and alone. But she soon met a new love interest, an older Harley Davidson driving man called Green. A man who the vulnerable young girl took a shine to and moved in together with after having only just met him. By the time Annika had hooked up with Green, she had already tried her fair share of various drugs. But there was one drug in particular. She had yet to sample. One of the most dangerous and soul-destroying of them all. Heroin. Green had a friend, a man called Sundance, a drug dealer who would often bring his supply of narcotics to the apartment Annika and Green shared together. One evening, when cutting and packing heroin, Annika asked the men if she could try it. They almost instantly declined her request. She persisted, but the two men told her that it was not a good idea. This was a drug which she really didn't want to try. Finally, after threatening to leave him, Green gave in to the young girl's demands and told Sundance to let her try heroin for the first time. Speaking to P3, Annika said, It was Sundance who gave me the first hit of heroin something he didn't want to do. He said to me, you're going to remember this moment and you're going to hate me for it. It wasn't long before Annika, like many before her, became a heroin addict. The drug which has the power to force its users into doing almost anything to get that next hit and to be able to get access to these hits which she craved so badly, she needed money. Annika was sent out to earn this cash by working as a stripper. A couple of years later, she received the shock that she wasn't ready for. She was pregnant with Green's baby. Life was moving extremely fast for the 15-year-old, addicted to heroin, using her body to make money, and pregnant. She knew that she had to make a change. So she left Green and fled to Nevada to be free from the drug culture that had taken over her life. And it was here that she would give birth to her son, who she named Sven. Despite having moved on with her life, her son was only six months old when Annika made the decision to return to San Francisco in green. Deep down, she knew herself that it was a bad idea, but she believed that she couldn't live without him. She soon fell back into that inevitable cycle that comes with addiction, but this time it was worse. Her habit was costing her hundreds of dollars per day, Stripping at clubs was never going to sustain her dependency on the drug so at the age of 16 she became a prostitute. The tumultuous relationship built on the need to make money for drugs grew closer and closer to breaking point. Green would stay at home with little Sven whilst Annika would roam the streets selling her body to strange men. In the end she once again made a decision to leave the father of her son. She may have managed to escape the never-ending cycle of misery that her relationship with her ex had become, but her life on drugs and violence would continue, even escalate to new levels. When she was 18 years old, a man was stabbed to death in the apartment which she shared with her then-boyfriend, It wasn't until two years later that she admitted to killing the man herself, but according to her, the murder was carried out in self-defense. She claimed that she was trying to protect her boyfriend. In the end, she was charged with manslaughter and sentenced to five years probation. Once again, Annika's conscience began to weigh on her mind and she knew that she had to get clean for the sake of her son. She checked into another rehab facility and got the help she so desperately needed. And not long after getting clean, she met a new man, Brian Deasy. But this time, it was different. He wasn't like the others. He was a working man who could offer her the safety and security both her and Sven needed. This relationship, like the others before it, wouldn't last. But it did give Sven several years of stability and schooling before its inevitable collapse. She again chose heroin, but it would not be a journey that her young son would have to endure. Annika would go it alone, sending Sven to the north of California to live with his father. It was 1980, a new decade, and it was during this year that Annika met a man called Bob Cox at a party. Cox was a cocaine dealer and a dangerous man who was well known to the police. But Annika liked what she saw. The lure of drugs and danger was too much for her to simply ignore. She had to hook up with him. The new couple had a lifestyle to fund, which was in part achieved through buying expensive goods via fraudulent checks. These goods would then be sold on for pure profit. And it was on the 1st of May 1981 that Annika and Bob came into the possession of a large amount of stolen meat, an item which needed sold quickly before it was past its sell-by date. Annika knew of someone who may be interested in the meat, Joe Torrey, a 58-year-old ex-restaurant owner. She left a message for him, and he soon called her back to let her know that he wanted to buy the meat. The couple drove to a warehouse in Stockton, California, to meet Joe and to do the deal. When there, according to Annika, Joe began to argue about the price and as she went to the back of the car to retrieve the meat, she could hear that the exchange between the two men was becoming more and more heated. Suddenly, there was a loud bang. Bob had shot Joe. Annika claimed that she didn't see the actual shot, but she saw Joe fall to the ground. Bob then shot him one more time, making sure that he was dead. They robbed him and drove away from the scene of the crime. Annika knew that they had to leave the country, and she told Bob that before they do so, she would have to go and see Sven, at least one more time to say goodbye to her son. They headed for the town of Clear Lake, and on arrival drove around the streets searching for the trailer which her ex-partner and son lived in. Sergeant Richard J. Hellbush was a 34 year old, 13 year veteran of the Lake County Sheriff's Office. On the 2nd of May 1981, when he was returning to the police department shortly after midnight, he spotted a vehicle with a flat tire by a particularly isolated area of the road. He decided to stop the car to see if he could be of any assistance. The occupants of the car were 39-year-old Bob Cox and 27-year-old Annika Deasy. When Helbisch returned to his patrol car to run a check, he was shot three times in the back by Cox. He didn't stand a chance. Unfortunately, the officer was unaware that the couple was wanted in connection with the homicide at the warehouse the previous day. Annika and Bob robbed the dead sergeant of his wallet and revolver and fled the scene in the patrol car. When dispatch received no reply from Richard after he had notified them that he was assisting the broken down vehicle backup was sent out to try and locate him. It wasn't long before officer Don Anderson was on the scene and he soon came across the dead body of his colleague. At the time He was only the second officer in the history of the Lake County Sheriff's Department to be killed in the line of duty. When driving down the highway in search of the vehicle, Officer Don suddenly saw it fly by in the opposite direction. He made a quick U turn and the pursuit of the suspected murderers began, with several other units soon joining the chase. But it was to be a short lived pursuit, with the car crashing into a tree at an intersection. Don and the other officers go out of their cars in anticipation of making a quick arrest. But it wasn't to be. Bob Cox pulled himself from the vehicle and fired at the police. The officers took cover behind their car doors and replied with gunfire of their own. Suddenly Bob fell to the ground. He had been shot in the stomach and Annika ran to his aid. The police screamed at her to stop and come forward with her hands in the air, but she insisted on helping Bob and finding his gun. According to her, it was not to shoot at the officers, but instead for him to shoot and kill her. She would later state that they had made a pact. If they were to be stopped by the police, then she would receive a bullet in the head from his gun. But it wasn't to be. Annika was restrained by the officers before she could locate the whereabouts of the pistol. Bob was taken to the hospital and she was driven to the police station. The events leading up to the shooting of Sergeant Hillbush were difficult to determine. Annika claimed, as she did with the shooting of Joe Tori, that she didn't see Bob firing the shots, which killed the sergeant. She stated that she was looking for an address in her purse, which she wanted the officer to check for her, to see if he could help locate the trailer in which her son lived. She didn't see the shooting, but she did see Hellbush falling to the ground, in her words, like a feather the Lake County District Attorney, Lester Fleming, disagreed with Annika's recollection of events. He suggested that evidence existed that she may have shot Sergeant Hellbush as he walked back to his patrol car. It was even suggested that during the shootout on the highway with the responding officers, that Annika helped Bob to reload his pistol. It was also thought that if she was willing to help him reload, then it was very possible that she could herself have shot Sergeant Hellbush in the back as he returned to his car. Back at the police station, the officers tried to get Annika to speak and to come clean about what had happened. They wanted a quick confession. But she didn't dare speak to them, especially whilst Bob was still alive. It was then, according to her, That the police pretended to receive a phone call from the hospital, all the time making sure that she was in earshot of the conversation. When the call was over, they told her that Bob was dead. He hadn't survived his injuries. In truth, he had survived, but would later commit suicide in prison shortly before the trial. Annika then decided to talk and told the police what had happened. She said that she was present when the murders took place, but she didn't pull the trigger. In cooperating with the police, she had a chance of avoiding the death penalty, something which she would have more than likely received if it could be established that she pulled the trigger. At various trial hearings, Annika would go on to explain the murders in detail and stated that her drug abuse was ultimately to blame for her part in the crimes. However, it was stated, after tests, that she wasn't under the influence of drugs at the time of the murders. In 1983, Annika Maria Östberg D.C. was sentenced to 25 years to life for her part in the murders of Yo Tori and Richard Hillbush. At the time of Annika's sentencing, politics and laws were very much different from today. The practice in the 1980s, right through until the year 2000, was that well-behaved prisoners were generally released after having served roughly half of their sentences. So it was very much expected that she would be out of prison after 12 years or so. With the political changes throughout the years, as well as campaigning from the relatives of her victims, with support from the Board of Prison Terms, Anika. ...was denied parole and refused transfer to Sweden on four separate occasions. But it wasn't just a change in politics and the law which affected the decision to refuse her parole. It just couldn't simply be forgotten that she was involved in two murders and fled the scene of both. Murders which were carried out for such trivial reasons. And there was also the fact that it wasn't her first offence. She had of course been charged with manslaughter for the death of the man at her apartment. And in addition to this, she had also been previously charged with numerous drugs offences, theft and supplying a minor with alcohol. Over the years, there were many attempts to have Annika transferred to Sweden to serve out the rest of her sentence in her home country. The actor and then-governor of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger, said in an interview with Swedish television that he would refuse any attempt to have her move to Sweden and stated that she should serve out the rest of her sentence in the USA. But behind the scenes, plans were in motion and in 2009, she was somewhat, perhaps surprisingly, Transferred back to Sweden. It was thought that the decision was possibly made in consideration with America struggling under the recent worldwide financial collapse and the ever growing burden that prisoners were putting on the then very frail economy. On Annika's return, it was decided in the Swedish High Court that her original sentence should be time limited and she was given a release date of May 2nd, 2011, 30 years after having originally been sentenced for her part in the two murders. The Swedish media coverage of Annika's time in prison has been heavily criticized throughout the years, both in Sweden and America. It was thought by many that she was almost portrayed as a victim and not a perpetrator. Newspaper columnist and TV producer Stefan Wallberg said in 2005, quote, Annika Östberg has been convicted of a double murder and murder in the first degree. The media have consistently reported that she was convicted of assisting in murders committed by her boyfriend, despite knowing that that is simply not true. Since being released from prison, Annika has remained in Sweden, giving lectures on what it was like to be imprisoned in the USA and has even released a book. Her son Sven sadly passed away in a car accident at the age of 15.